Thanks. Please be seated. Thanks to Jono and the team for leading us this morning. I had the best day yesterday. The best day. I watched the services from Sunday. And I don't know if you were here on Sunday, but I never realised Pastor Nathan pays for other people's speeding fines. How good is that? I was sitting at home watching it on my computer and I thought, I just need to rewind that a little bit. Did I hear right? Did I hear right? Yes, Andrew confirmed it. Yes, David confirmed it. If you have a speeding fine, just hand it over to Pastor Nathan. He will look after it for you. He will say, your debt is paid in full. Oh, I just wanted to head out in my little car and do 120 down the freeway. I really did. I just thought, now's the moment, Neil. Go out and enjoy yourself. No fear at all. So good. So good. We start a new series this morning on the Sermon on the Mount. We've heard it perhaps many times, but I hope something fresh for you today. So just a few verses from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through to 3. Matthew 5, 1 through to 3. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain. After he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 5 begins the Sermon on the Mount, which goes for three chapters, Matthew 5, 6 and 7. And Matthew has recorded us, I would say, one of the best sermons ever. One of the best sermons ever. It is the most concentrated of Jesus' teaching all in the New Testament. And the original sermon was probably a lot longer than what we have recorded for us. It says there the crowds gathered and they, cra- they came from great distances. If I was to read to you the whole three chapters this morning, Matthew 5, 6 and 7, it probably wouldn't take me too long. And maybe the crowd would have thought, you know, well, we've come all the way and we've heard a great message, but is that it? So I would say that what Matthew's recorded for us is the essence of what Jesus spoke about at that time. Not forgetting, of course, that this is a sermon given at a particular time to a particular group of people at a particular place. And Jesus probably spoke similar words to different crowds in different places. I would have to say that probably you agree with me that we love the Sermon on the Mount, very much so, and the ideal that it sets, but if we're honest, we fall incredibly short of it. Not just the verse we've just read, but the other verses that follow, and we think, well, no, that's not me, that's not me, that's not me. So what then is our response to be to this sermon? Should we say, Jesus, these are great words, these are great words to preach, but they're impossible to live by? Or should we ignore the Sermon on the Mount and say, look, it's so high for us, we can never reach it, so look, they're just lovely words, but let's get on and move on with our lives. If so, if that is the case, then Jesus wasted his breath, really. He meant it to be taken seriously. And I would say that the issue is that perhaps some of us, or many people perhaps, have even taken the Sermon on the Mount of the Sermon on the Mount idealistically. They think that Jesus is setting up this high standard to which we are to live. But let's be honest. Who wants to, in the verses that follow, who wants to live a life in poverty? I don't think anybody here does. Who wants to be in a state of great sorrow? I don't think anybody does. Anybody wants to 
hunger and thirst so much for righteousness. Well, maybe that one. But certainly not the others. So is the other beatitude saying to us, right, get ourselves into that state, into that condition, and then we will be blessed. I don't want to live in poverty. I don't. I don't want to mourn. So if they're not ideals to live up to, others say that they are prerequisites for entrance into the kingdom of heaven. That if you live by these, then you will be accepted by God. The problem with both these points of views is that they rely on our good works rather than God's grace. And they turn the gospel from being a gospel of grace into a gospel, well it's not a gospel, of, is it, of good news, if it's good works that we have to live by. If we take one of those two views that this is a standard that we are to live by, then we would say that we have feelings of guilt because we don't live up to them. Or we have feelings of self-righteousness by, self-righteousness by saying, you know, to a certain degree I am a little bit like that. Or we become morally arrogant and we think, how good am I? compared to that person next to me, right, who's not living the life that I'm living. Many commentators, as I was researching this, say that the basis for Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount comes from Isaiah chapter 61, Isaiah 61. And many of its themes in Isaiah 61 are repeated here, and that Isaiah 61 is a chapter of God's grace, God's grace. So instead of reading these words as wisdom teachings, which emphasize human achievements, instead we read them as prophetic teachings, which emphasize the grace of God. We can see God's grace in his deliverance from our poverty, from our mourning, from our captivity, So we read them not so much as, I have to reach this standard as, if I'm in this situation, how gracious is God to deliver me out of it? And then, what do I experience? Great blessing and great joy. Oh, how blessed am I to see what God has done for me. So God's grace is shown in his deliverance. And of course, for us, as we know, this all comes through the person of Christ. So be happy, be filled with joy. God is a God of grace who knows your situation and is offering you a life that is countercultural to the world. In these Beatitudes, God tells us, of how we are to live as citizens in his kingdom, a kingdom filled with grace. And each beatitude begins with a present situation, speaks of God delivering those who are living in that situation, but also gives a promise of the future aspect that this will be fulfilled in its completion, of course, when we get to see him in heaven. So the chapter begins with Jesus was teaching his disciples it's as if Jesus was saying to his disciples this is how it's going to be in my kingdom this is how you are going to live now that you are participants in my kingdom 
This is the king. Did you see Saturday night? This is the king, but this is the king of kings speaking about his kingdom. So we better pay attention. Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God, preaching the rule and reign of God in a person's life when they enter into his kingdom. And this is what he expects of those who are already in his kingdom. Both Matthew and Luke, Luke also records a similar passage, introduced the sermon as one of the great speeches. Jesus sat down and he taught his disciples. His disciples came to him. Now today, it's often the case, is what's happening right now, right? You're all seated and I'm the one who's standing. But in the time of Jesus, it was the opposite way. A person of authority would sit down with no amplification. It would mean that more of a crowd could draw close to the person, possibly in a little bit of an elevated position, that they would stand and they would look, look towards this person who was speaking in front, or speaking, uh, sorry, they would look down at the person who had been seated in front of them, but seated just a little bit higher than they were. The sermon also comes from Jesus' heart, we read. He opened his mouth and he taught them. This is an idiomatic phrase at the time, which says that the speaker is giving everything that is God in this sermon. He opened his mouth and he taught them. Luke says he lifted up his eyes on his disciples, another idiom also, to, me, to mean that they would receive every word that he spoke. Even though we might have the Reader's Digest version of the Sermon on the Mount, when you think about it, it must have been so extraordinary. Oh, look, I'm just going to take one beatitude this morning. But imagine hearing Jesus speak. I don't know for how long. 45 minutes, an hour, might have been even longer. And try to absorb all that and take all of it in. Matthew says he was teaching them. Here, Matthew uses the imperfect tense to say that when Jesus finished, this wasn't the end of his teaching, that he taught this many times. This was the most outstanding of them all. The sermon begins with the Beatitudes, and you've often heard, perhaps like I have, they are called the beautiful attitudes, beautiful attitudes. Simple statements, but the more we look into each one of them, the deeper our thoughts should go. When the sermon ends, it ends this way. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. In Luke 4.22, in fact, it says they were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. If they heard this teaching and they thought to themselves for however long it went, wow, what gracious words Jesus speaks, then he wasn't delivering this message as a message of condemnation, of telling them that they're not living up to a standard, they need to try harder, they need to strive more, become this person and then God will accept you more. No, they came away and they said, he speaks gracious words. His words are so gracious, his words are so loving toward us. So Jesus was not commanding them to live to some unattainable ideal. 
We must also remember that this sermon is given to disciples. At the end of it, the crowd went away, but it was the disciples who remained. So it's not a sermon to bring people to faith. It's those who already have faith in God and how we grow as Christians. For Jesus would later say, as we'll see in a few weeks' time, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. That's not, that's not given to unbelievers. That's given to his disciples, those already committed to him. And then just looking at the background of this passage, the sermon can be divided neatly into two sections. The first section, chapter, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 to 16, talking about the character of a Christian, the character of a Christian, how it relates to who we are, what we be, and then 5.17 through to the end talks about the conduct of the Christian, relating to what we do, what we do. And it's true, isn't it? That's what God does in our lives. He comes into our lives by his Holy Spirit to change who we are from the inside out so that then our actions and our words might be changed because of his Spirit living within us. He doesn't command us the other way, right, the external stuff, do this, say this, do this, say this, and then you'll be changed on the inside. No, God has to do his deep work within us by his Holy Spirit. And then we do what is right. We say what is right. Conduct always comes out of character. And then also, lastly, in the background of this, we should remind ourselves that these words come from the lips of Jesus, not some just wise sage or philosopher, Jesus the King of his kingdom. So let's have a look at the first one. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you were there on that day that you heard Jesus speak these words, you were most likely poor it was the poor who gravitated to Jesus to hear his words those who who left their farms who left things because they'd heard that there was this wise man who was teaching words with authority that they'd never heard of before with such power that we must leave everything and we must go and hear what he has to say to us those who are in the north, those who are living in Galilee, not the rich rulers down in Jerusalem, but the poor would have been the ones who heard Jesus say these words to them, how blessed are you, for the kingdom of heaven is yours. And I imagine that in that moment, their thoughts now began to run around and start to think, well, how can I be blessed? I'm struggling to survive. My income is just meeting my daily needs and then tomorrow I must work so that I can feed my children the next day. And Jesus is saying to me that I'm blessed. Oh, what joy. Oh, be so happy that I'm living in this state. For in Jesus' day, of course, it was the common belief that the rich were those who were blessed by God. It was the rich who were the favoured ones, the, the rich that be, would be welcomed into his kingdom. So what Jesus is saying 
is the very opposite of what I've seen and what I've believed and what the Pharisees have taught me. God doesn't favour the poor. A man born blind, the natural response is, and having to beg, the natural response is to ask. So who sinned? Did his parents sin so that he's in this state? Or did somehow, did he sin in the womb that he ends up like this in this condition? That's what they would have expected. They would have expected Jesus to say, oh, the misery for the poor, for the kingdom is lost to them. Instead, blessed are those with a mansion, manicured lawns, numerous servants, an array of cars to drive, a private jet on standby. Oh, how blessed you are. God has poured out his blessing upon you. In Jesus' day, the equivalent of all of that would have been Herod's palace at Masada and his Herodium near Bethlehem. Jesus has compassion for the rich. Mark 10, 24, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of heaven. Or if I was to put it another way, I could say this. You are in such an unfortunate situation when all you have to meet life is money. For you are the real poor. How hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus wasn't speaking out of envy. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He wasn't trying to entice the rich, trying to win their favour that, so that they, he, they might give some of their wealth to him and his disciples. Now, what Jesus meant, what he said is what he meant. Wealth can easily be a crippling handicap to life. I don't know if you're like me, but I watched Saturday night the crowning of the king, and I enjoyed it immensely, but I kept thinking, thank the Lord I'm not a royal. Honestly, who would want to live on show every time you went out, restricted from going to many places, always having to put on your best face already, is on, face, on the, the internet already, of Charles sitting in the carriage there complaining to Camilla, we're always late, we're always late, can't we ever get to things on time? Who would want to live as a royal? Let's be honest. In opposition, of course, are the poor. And surprisingly, this would have been a shocking statement for those who heard Jesus at that time. For he is saying, Real wealth is yours. Jesus is not saying that poverty is the greatest thing, is the good thing. He says it's the poor, he says in Luke, who are blessed. In Matthew, it's the 
poor in spirit. And there is a slight difference here. They don't mean the same. But Jesus is not blessing poverty as if he's saying to us, you know, give away everything that you have, have nothing, and then you'll be in a state of the greatest joy. Now, Jesus is saying, blessed are those who are in the state of poverty. He was thinking about the person, not the condition. For let's be honest, poverty is a wretched state. I've been seeing the shanty towns in South Africa. I've seen the slums of India. I don't want to live like that. To have nothing, for life to be a daily struggle of survival. I came away from both those places thinking, how blessed am I? Speaking to students in India and them saying to me, we will never ever have enough money to fly in a plane. And me thinking of all the times I've been able to fly. Jesus is not imploring us, saying, become so poor because then you'll receive blessing. No, he's not saying that. He's saying this. The poor have a special place in God's heart. God relieves the poor and delivers the oppressed. He champions the cause of the widow and defends the fatherless. It's not poverty that he is commending for we're told in scripture that we should do everything to relieve another person who is in poverty from being in that state we are the ones to help the poor it'd be silly if i see a poor person and i give to them everything that i own so now they're living the life that i'm living now and then i end up in poverty and then they look at me and say well now i I need to give you back everything that you've given me no it doesn't make any sense does it in two in the greek there are two words for poor one is to have just the bare necessities of life just enough to keep our body and soul together together it is to survive without having to beg But in this state, there is no desire to be able to give to another person to enrich their life because you are just struggling day by day. But that's not the word that Jesus used here. The word he uses here are those who are destitute, those who have absolutely nothing, And it's said that at the time of Jesus, this might have been 10% of the population. When James writes, and he talks about the poor in his book, he's talking about the poorest of the poorest of the poor. So in the time of Jesus, 90% of people lived in some poverty state. 10% were rich, just 10%. But he's talking about the lowest of those 90%, the 10% of that 90%. Beggars, tramps, vagrants. These people live in shame. It's not even having the ability to meet the obligations of state, church, family, or even yourself. 
If you lived this way in Jesus' time, you had no dignity, certainly no power, and no means for protection against insult, injury, or anything. And yet Jesus says, blessed are you. So who was the poor man in the Old Testament? In the Old Testament. The poor man in the Old Testament was wholly dependent on others to survive. His only world was the world of charity that enabled him to live. It was used of the person who was neglected and downtrodden. In the book of Amos, we read of the poor who having just enough money to survive go and sell themselves as slaves so that they might buy a pair of sandals. But even in that situation, there is the choice, isn't there, of the person either becoming bitter because of the situation that I'm in or thinking to myself, God watches over me. He has me in his heart. In the Psalms, the word poor is used of the person who turns their attention away from the world and fixes their attention on God with no strength of their own they put their trust in him let me read to you some verses out of psalm psalm 40 verse 17 as for me i am poor and needy but the lord takes thought for me psalm 34 verse 6 this poor soul cried and was heard by the lord and was saved from every trouble psalm 123 to you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens, as the eyes of the servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress. So our eyes look to the Lord our God until he have mercy upon us. A maid or a servant looked for any sign of favour. Their whole life, their whole life and welfare was totally wrapped up in the good pleasure of the master or mistress, whatever they commanded of them, they were to do, for they had no one else to look to. And they would say of their master, as the psalmist says of God in Psalm 16, verse 2, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. So with all this background to the word poor, what was Jesus saying? How happy, how happy if you are poor when you know God. For the person who is dependent on God for everything to live, not dependent on the things of this world, possesses a treasure like no other. They may be poor in things, they might have nothing according to the world's standards but they have the greatest riches of everything, a relationship with God. So actually, whether it's the poor or the poor in spirit, they come together, both the economically poor and the spiritually humble. 
It is the person who is poor, not proud, not self-sufficient. To be poor is not to be poor-spirited. We, in our Australian way, we'd call that person a whinger, wouldn't we? Always complaining about their state. But the person that Jesus is, is particularly pointing out here is the person who has their confidence in God. They're totally content for another person to be wholly responsible for them. They keep trusting in God, though there be. Though the fig tree doesn't blossom and there is no fruit on the vine, still I can trust my Lord. That person who is surrendered to God and available to him, governed by him, who has made God the Lord of their life, it's that person that Jesus says is allowing God to reign and rule in their life. They have come into my kingdom, Jesus would say. They have the kingdom of heaven. Such a person... We know these people, don't we, sometimes, who come into great wealth. Great wealth. This person may later make money, heaps of money, and acquire possessions. Perhaps even rise up in the world to a position of power and prestige. I used to say to my students at the Bible school, 40, 50 students, 18 to 24-year-olds. Look around the classroom here. Statistically, one or two of you will become extremely wealthy in your lifetime. Extremely wealthy. You don't think of it now. You're students. You don't have any money. You're thinking about how can I, you know, go into town and buy something for myself, you know, just some coffee or something like that. You don't think it's going to happen now, but statistically... One or two of you be going to become really wealthy. Will you stay true to God? Will you be a blessing to others because you are blessed? One of them in particular, I know. I visited Canada a few years after that class and he picked me up in his brand new Audi A7. He was 24 years of age. We went out for lunch and he said, Neil, I'm paying for everything. I'm paying for everything. And I thought of those words, you, it's come true for you. That person who rises up into a position of power and prestige, will their hearts stay true to God? They don't let possessions possess them. Their trust in God is never stolen away by the attraction of stuff. But that same person perhaps can sustain loss. In a moment, everything is taken away. But that doesn't trouble them. It doesn't upset them. It doesn't give them cause to blame others. You know as well as I do, Christians who've been ripped off by others for some enormous amounts of money, but there's no bitterness in their heart. It's the Lord who is the centre of their life. They trust in him. 
even though others do great wrongs to them, they do not blame them, they accept it and they still give thanks to the Lord. For stuff, possessions, are merely things to be used for God's glory. And God can still be glorified with what I have now. Whatever good gifts the person has received, they know come from the hands of the Lord and all thanks is to be given to him for their real enjoyment is not in the things themselves but in God. The loss of stuff changes nothing. Job 1, 21, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So in poverty, whether that's economic poverty or humility, that person knows that they are richly blessed, poor in spirit, humble, but rich in God. Like Paul, they have learned to be content in every situation. It was the poor who came to Jesus that day. They've heard of a man who spoke words that they'd never heard before. And they left amazed at his gracious words. How blessed, Jesus says. How blessed you are. If you've come into God's kingdom, you're really rich. It's when we come to Christ. When we hear Jesus speak, offering to us the abundant life, the life in surplus the life made available to each of us, found only in him, that we can say, I'm truly rich. I'm truly rich. So how do we move out of the state of being poor in spirit to being rich in God is living life in a dependence on him. I'm sure we could all testify as I do as well, there'd be moments in my life I'm counting the dollars, especially when I was a theological student, that's for sure. I'm working as a DJ on weddings on Saturdays so I can buy that theological book at Kurong the next week. And I'm looking at every dollar. Can I afford that? Can I afford that? Yet I would say for each of us, there'd be times also when we look at our lives and we go, gee, I was blessed. God just blessed me, blessed me with so much. But whether I was living in that state of a student at theological college or whether I was having reasonable amount of money in the bank, I was still and joyful in this moment and joyful in that moment. Faith in God can only give life meaning, purpose and significance, whatever we have. We give it to God, don't we? For him to use. Not to take pride in the things that he has given to us. Not to think that our only enjoyment comes from them. And to hold everything that God has given to us with an open hand, realising that any moment he might want it from us and that if he is to take it from us and we have a clenched fist, how painful it's going to be as he prizes our fingers apart to get to that thing. 
and said instead saying lord my life is yours the things that i own that i have are yours everything that is given to me is yours you just use it for your glory the person who goes to bed at night dreaming of building a bigger barn holding more stuff more stuff is becoming emptier inside so this beatitude is a great challenge a great challenge of where real wealth is found not in the possession of things but in having a relationship with christ jesus says here and also we're not to aim to be wealthy but instead to become a person and be a person of faith and that choice is always yours and always mine we can either look to the world and our own power and try to amass more and more or we can think of the words of Jesus in Matthew 6:24 you cannot serve god and mammon the very same jesus spoke this in this sermon we can participate in the reign of god by humbling ourselves before him by giving ourselves to him by depending on him for our deliverance and following god by caring for those who have less than what we have so as one commentator writes this beatitude he writes it this way he says blessed are the humble before god he cares for the poor and cares for the humble you are blessed let's pray together what's so easy in this world that we live in to be caught up into the trap the trap that we deserve we have the right to have the next thing that is bigger newer faster flashier than the one that we currently have oh lord may we hold deep in our hearts the truth that having christ living within us we are truly rich truly rich we have no fear we have overflowing joy and we have boundless love because your love lord is poured into our hearts by the holy spirit may we be thankful lord for whatever we have knowing it is your gift to us and may we see it lord as a thing that we might use for your glory we humble ourselves this day before you and give you our thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand with us as we sing as a song called Amazing Grace? It talks about his greater love for us. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. 
fully satisfy every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus to our God and Father be glory forever and ever Amen